0: The Secret Church Podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For the Secret Church 14 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC14. This is Secret Church 14, Episode 6. Now, back and away from family relationships now, uh, think through, okay, two categories. Our approach to other followers of Christ every day, and our approach to those who are not followers of Christ every day. How do we, how do we approach Christians, non-Christians on a daily basis? So, we're going to fly. You ready? One, we care for one another. Care for one another. As you receive mercy from God, reflect mercy toward one another. So, this is the cross of Christ compelling us to do all these things. We've received this kind of love, so we reflect this kind of love. Our community with one another is intended to be a reflection of his character. So, we love one another, John 13, 35. Thirty-four and thirty-five. Just as I have loved you, you all love one another. Host one another. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. First Peter four nine. Greet one another. First Corinthians sixteen twenty. We don't have to necessarily do it with a holy kiss, but greet one another. Receive one another. Romans fifteen seven. Honor one another. Literally, prefer one another in honor. So outdo other people. Other followers of Christ in bestowing honor. Romans 12:10. Serve one another. Instruct one another. Wait for one another. Forgive one another. Colossians 3:13. Bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Do not hold grudges against a brother or sister in Christ. It undercuts the gospel completely. Submit to one another. Spur on one another. Promote peace with one another. Be at peace among yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 5:13. Bear one another's burdens encourage one another comfort one another 2 Corinthians chapter 1 5 verses comfort mentioned 10 different times comfort one another pray for and confess to one another esteem one another edify one another teach one another Colossians 3 16 the word's not just for you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom teach one another be kind to one another Ephesians 4 32 serve alongside one another with all the gifts that God given you in the body of Christ remember this serve alongside one another Romans 12 1 Corinthians 12, we're members of a family where everybody counts. Everybody counts. So don't sit on the sidelines in the body of Christ. Nobody's inferior. We guard against self-depreciation. Well, I'm not really needed in the church. Nobody's superior. We guard against self-exaltation. I don't need others in the church. There's no need for us to compare ourselves to others and conclude that we don't, we have little to offer. And then no need to copy somebody else in an attempt to be somebody we're not. God has saved every single follower of Christ. He's filled you with His Spirit. He's given you unique gifts to build up others in Christ. We're members of a family where everybody counts. and members of a family where everybody contributes. Where We all use our gifts to the glory of our God. We serve alongside one another. We give to one another. Great passages there on giving the New Testament that... Emphasize continually prioritizing care for the poor. We continually prioritize care for the poor among us to help brothers and sisters among us in need. Intentionally maximize your resources, not in excessive luxuries for yourself, but in extravagant love for others. First Timothy 6, be generous with what we've been given. This is how we approach this. So our resources, our salaries, not just for us. They're for others. They're for other followers of Christ, followers of Christ in need. We restore one another when we see each other wandering into sin. Galatians chapter 6. If anybody's caught in a transgression, you are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. We follow Jesus' instruction on a continual basis. We're continually doing this, starting with step one, private correction. If a brother or sister is caught in sin, we go to that brother or sister. We don't wait. We go to them humbly, lovingly, address that. If they refuse to turn from that sin, that leads to step two, small group clarification, where we bring one or two others along. And address sin in this brother or sister in Christ, call them back to Christ. If that doesn't work, we move to step three church admonition. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to use the Gentile and the tax collector, which is step four church excommunication. In other words, there comes a point where you treat someone else like they're no longer a brother in Christ, as a member of the body of Christ. They're no longer, because of unrepentant sin. So there's a process here that Jesus has given us that we play out on a continual basis as Christians in each other's lives, where we're calling each other away from sin. And the goal in all of this, the goal of all church discipline, is spiritual restoration. My brothers, if anyone one you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whatever, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is a good work we do in each other's lives. I need brothers and sisters in my life on a daily, weekly basis who love me enough to call me away from sin whenever they see me wandering into it. The most unloving thing Christians around me could do is see me wandering into sin, not repenting of sin, and sit back and do nothing about it. This is obviously not an easy process. So we've got to make sure in this process to be humble, to be biblical, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they're unprofitable and worthless. So this is not just pet peeves. We need to ask questions. Is there sin that's dishonoring God? Is there sin that's damaging the gospel like we see in 1 and 2 Timothy? Is there sin that's hurting the unity of the church, Romans 16, 17, and 18? Or is there sin that's hurting the witness of the church, Philippians 2, 14, and 15? If so, then by God's grace, address it. So be biblical. Be humble. Be pure in the process. Make sure to examine your own life. Examine your motives of it at every point. Are you going to this brother or sister out of love for their good to serve them? Not yourself. Be pure. Be prayerful. Realize that if a brother or sister is caught in sin, only Christ can bring them out of that. You can't ultimately make this happen no matter what you say, how hard you try. So I love 2 Timothy 2 here. We instruct a brother in sin in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading them to a the knowledge of the truth. Be prayerful. Be quiet. Meaning, be quiet when it comes to gossip. Don't gossip about it. Zealously guard the character of Christ and brothers and sisters. Be quiet and be quick. Not that we should rush this process, but Scripture says we don't let sin grow. Matthew 5, if you're offering a gift, gift there at the altar, remember that, your brother, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there at the altar right there and go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come offer your gift. The reality is, as long, the longer sin continues, the longer a brother or sister is continuing in unrepentant sin, the more challenging restoration is going to be. So be patient, obviously, in overlooking minor offenses, but when sin is dishonoring the God, damaging the gospel, hurting the unity witness of the church, be quick to address it and ultimately be Christ-like, trusting in Christ's authority depending on Christ's presence, honoring the cross of Christ all for the glory of Christ, Matthew 18. So we want to live our lives on a daily basis to love other Christians as we love ourselves. And these are some of the ways Scripture says we do that in the normal routines of every day. life. Now, it's not that every single day we say, okay, how can I do all these one another? But this is the posture On a daily basis, that we approach other followers of Christ with. As Christ has loved us, we love them. And then that love spills over into a Christian's daily approach to non Christians. So, why has God left us here on earth? Christians, why has God not just saved us and immediately taken us to be with Him as the church in heaven? Why why has He not taken us out of this world of sin and suffering? He has left us here for a purpose to enjoy his grace and exalt his glory. And we do this not only in knowing the gospel, but in proclaiming the gospel. There are people around us every single day who are on a road that leads straight to hell. And if nothing changes, then they will spend all eternity in everlasting damnation. And God has put us in their lives for a purpose. And the dangerous thing is, if we're not careful, we will just completely miss this purpose. You and I are tempted on a daily basis to sit back in our supposedly Christian lives, to enjoy God, to pray to God, read God's word, worship God in church, talk about God with other Christians. Yet so often we rarely talk about God and the gospel with people who are not Christians. We... We live in a Christian bubble. We're cry, quieter about Christ around our non-Christian neighbors, employees, friends. We don't have an urgency oftentimes to tell them how they can be saved from their sin. So I'm, I'm guessing that many of us, if not most of us, just to be honest, probably the large majority of us are not waking up in the morning thinking, who can I share the gospel with today? We're not. we're not thinking that way. And we're not living all day long, trying, working hard to lead other people to Jesus. Like that's an afterthought to us. or That's for the pastor, the other people. That's, that's not for me. The reality is, and I say this with as much compassion as in me, if I were to ask followers of Jesus in this room tonight or in all the places that were gathered, if I were to ask you to stand up, well, if I were to ask if you've led somebody to Jesus in the last year, to stand up where you are, and I'm not going to do this, so don't, don't get nervous. I think the overwhelming majority of us would probably stay seated. And the reality is, for many followers of Jesus, the last two years, or three, or four, or five, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, have not led somebody else to Jesus, or or maybe led one or two people to Jesus. And I say this, so please, please hear me. Like, I'm not looking to heap guilt, condemnation upon you, to make you feel bad if you've not led somebody to Christ, or if you're not actively leading people to Christ, or, or not make you feel prideful if you are. Like, but to help us realize that if we're not careful, our salvation can subtly and inadvertently turn into self-consumption, where we're receiving grace from God in our lives, but we're keeping it to ourselves. And if we're not careful, Christian, we're going to get to the end of our lives. We're going to look back and realize we missed the whole point. When God has given us this command. Make disciples of all nations. It's intended to infuse our everyday lives. So are we going to get to the end of our lives, stand before God and say, I I didn't do the one commission you gave me to do on earth. I didn't, I didn't make a disciple or I made a disciple here or there. And so to call 60,000 of us tonight out of a casual commitment to the commission of Christ. And to call us in Christ to say, this is Christ's invitation for us to be a part of what He's doing in the world for the spread of His glory so that more and more and more people can enjoy His grace and exalt His glory. So that more and more and more people can know this precious truth that we hold tightly in our hearts on this Good Friday evening. And so that more and more and more people can miss hell and make heaven by the blood of Christ. So, I want to call us, based on Colossians 4, 1 Corinthians 9, to, to this kind of picture. So how do we approach non-Christians? We daily relinquish our rights for the sake of the gospel. We relinquish our rights. So the example in 1 Corinthians 9 is Paul. Seven different times in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul talked about how he had a right to financial support from the church at Corinth. He surrendered that right, though, for the sake of the gospel in Corinth. Paul believed that Taking financial support from Corinth would hinder the spread of the gospel of Corinth, so he set aside that right that he had. So in this, hear the exhortation to you and me. You and I have rights every day. Where we live and the world around us, I just put in your notes some tangible examples. There's obviously, obviously tons more of them, but think about it. As a Okay, followers of Jesus, you've got a right in this world. To life, friends, marriage, family, safety, security, health, and happiness. You have a right to eat, drink, watch, wear, read, study, listen to, say whatever you want. You've got a right to organize your schedule, spend your time, choose your career, make your money, use your money, take your vacation, plan your retirement. You have a right to do what you want to do, go where you want to go, live how you want to live. We are, most of us in this gathering tonight are Americans. Many, maybe more than any people in the world, we're familiar with our rights. We cling to our rights. So this truth is huge for us because follower of Jesus, the cross compels you and me to surrender our rights every day for the sake of the gospel where we live and in the world around us. To surrender our rights to say on a daily basis, I have a right to do all kinds of things today with my time, with my money, and my family, and my life, but I'm going to surrender them today to say, how can I best spread the gospel with my time, my money, my family, my life? This is what we do as followers of Jesus. We put it all on the table. We use language around here at Burke Hills all the time about it. blank check, no strings attached. Put blank check on the table with your life on a daily basis. You're saying, Lord, what do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? How do you want to use me to make the gospel known today? And I'll do it. This is what it means to be a follower of Christ. This sounds kind of extreme, but this is basic discipleship. To lay down your life and say, my life is yours. To make this gospel known. So it's what the cross compels us to do. We relinquish our rights for the sake of the gospel. And we daily rearrange our schedules for the spread of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, 19, Paul moves from language about rights to language about freedom. He says, though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. And the word there for servants, literally slave. He says, I've made myself a slave to all. Why? Follow it here. Here's the purpose. I've made myself a slave to all that I might win more of them. What does that mean? Win them? He goes on to say to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. those outside the law, became as one outside the law that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. And then he says, here's what I mean by this win language. Verse 22, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Paul just said, it may sound like old-fashioned religious language to some, but this is biblical reality. Paul knows there's all kinds of people around him, Jews, non-Jews, people of different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different situations. What unites them all is they need to be saved from their sins. Paul knows all kinds of people are on a road that leads to an eternity apart from God. And so he says, I do whatever it takes. I flex my lifestyle. I make adjustments. I rearrange my life in order that they might be saved. I'm a slave to this purpose, Paul says. See it. followers of Jesus in this gathering tonight. See how Jesus frees you to be a slave. Now that sounds backward to us, but it's true. Followers of Jesus, we are slaves of God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Then he says this, if I do this, if I preach the gospel of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm entrusted with a stewardship. You realize what Paul just said. He said, I'm not preaching the gospel because I chose to do this. This is God's will for me to do. It's necessity. It's incumbent upon me. Whoa, condemnation on me. If I don't do what I've been commissioned to do by God, I'm a slave. Which is exactly what Paul calls himself throughout the New Testament. A slave of God. Followers of Jesus, this is what We are. To use language from 1 Corinthians 6 earlier, you're not your own. We've been bought at a price. We belong to God. We belong to him. We're slaves of him. Which means, so in your notes there, when it comes to Christ's commission to spread the gospel, we're obligated to obey. We don't have a choice. Necessity's laid upon us. Woe to us if we don't share the gospel. Woe to us. It's the same language Paul uses back in Romans. He says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That's why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you at Rome. He says, I'm obligated. Because Christ owns Paul, Paul owes Christ to the world. Because Christ owns you, you owe Christ the world. We're under divine obligation to spread the gospel. Now, I want to be careful in using that language. I mean, it's scriptural language. But it can start to sound like, okay, we have to do that we don't really want to do. But that's not the way Paul's using obligation here. Paul's not reluctantly saying, well, I'm a slave. I don't want to be a slave, but I am. Even though I don't want to do what God has told me to do, I have to do it. That's the farthest thing from what Paul's saying. Paul's saying for him, making clear to us, God's gracious conversion of us creates a gospel compulsion in us. On a daily basis, Paul's driven to spread the gospel to others. He's overwhelmed by the grace of God in him. You and I have been saved by immeasurable, incomprehensible, inconceivable mercy. And that mercy now compels us to spread the gospel in our lives. We're stewards of it. We've been given something great. We've been given something eternally great. There's nothing greater than the gospel of God. And so we don't keep it to ourselves. We're free. We're free. By the gospel, we're free to be slaves of God, which then leads to the next part we're slaves of others. I've made myself a slave to all so I might win them to Christ. So is this how you view people around you in the world on a daily basis? The people you work with, the people you live next to, the people in your community, your city, people in North America, people groups among the nations, do you see yourself as their slaves? Where you're willing, where I'm willing, where we're willing to rearrange our lives that they might be one to Christ. And rearrange our lives. This means we wisely contextualize the truth of the gospel for others' lives. We, we endure anything but put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. This remains contextualized. We remove obstacles to the gospel so that, so that people around us can understand the gospel as clearly as possible. And we continually communicate threads of the gospel in our lives. Now, here's what I mean by that. This is language uh, we use around here at Brook Hills a lot, and, and it comes from some time I spent in the Middle East with a group of people. So this is a country in the Middle East where it's illegal to convert to Christianity from Islam, and it's illegal to share the gospel with a Muslim. But I was around some brothers and sisters who were sharing the gospel all day long in this country in beautiful ways. You say, well, how is that possible? I thought it was illegal. What they, the way they described it, and I saw it in action, is they said, our goal, they've got a business where they're working with... Muslims in this country, and in the context of this business, they are every day, as they said, our goal is every day to weave threads of the gospel into the lives, into our conversations with Muslims who we work with. And so every day we want to be intentional about weaving threads of the gospel, talking about the gospel in different ways. And our hope is, our prayer is, we're constantly praying that as we weave these different threads of the gospel that one day God's going to open their eyes to this this tapestry of grace that's been woven in front of them and we'll draw them to Christ. And they're seeing it happen. They, they, they talk about different gospel truths just in unassuming ways all day long, just in the flow of everyday life. And then something will happen in this man's life. And he'll come to them and say, hey, I heard you say this. Can you tell me more about that? And they're seeing Muslims come to Christ. Then they have an opportunity to kind of give the whole picture. And hey, here's how all the gospel comes together. Muslims come to Christ. It's causing problems for them because the more people come to Christ, the more persecution rises. That's what we were talking about earlier. But I came back thinking, why, why can I not do the same thing every day? Why can you and I not be a gospel? So, so the cross of Christ compelling us every day. The, the gospel just saturating our speech. There are opportunities we have to weave threads of the gospel into our conversations with people who don't know Christ on a daily basis and do the same thing. So, so what I've put in your notes there, five threads of the gospel. Character of God, sinfulness of man, sufficiency of Christ, necessity of faith, urgency of eternity. We're going to hit these really quickly, and then and then go to go to break. But but just, I, I want to give you, now oh, there's so much here we could dive into, but I want to give you just some practical ways to think about, okay, we've been given this commission, how can we do this on a daily basis? So think, character of, of God. So this gospel thread. God's the holy, just, and gracious creator of all things. He's holy, which means, we've already talked about this, so God's perfectly unique, completely separate, absolutely pure. He's just, he justifies the innocent, condemns the guilty, Proverbs 17, 15, and he's gracious. God shows the guilty free and unmerited favor. So then, how can we weave that gospel truth into everyday conversations? I mean, think about it. conversations you've got at work, at lunch, around friends, family, neighbors, ball field, wherever you go, like look around. How can you talk about the character of God, talking about God as creator? Acknowledge the glory of God in creation every chance you have. So Romans 1 makes clear that God is revealing himself at every moment in creation to people around us. So instead of saying, look at that sunset, isn't it majestic? Look at the glory of God in that sunset. He's majestic. Don't talk about creation like you're an atheist. And similarly, acknowledge the presence of God in specific facets of your life. The question, what's going on in your life, takes on radically new meaning when you're intentionally weaving the gospel into the fabric of your conversations. Again, don't talk like an atheist, like God's nowhere to be found in your life. Talk like God is present in your life. What's going on in your life? Well, God's working in my life in this way. God's blessing me in this way. God's leading me in this direction. God's guiding me to make decisions. God's teaching me this truth. God's showing me this realization. Like, as you say this, you're triggering the people. Hey, this guy actually believes that there's a God who's at work and their i and actually doing good things in their lives. So we, we, we have this dangerous tendency, don't we, to compartmentalize our faith? We put God over here on Sunday morning in that box, and that's when we talk about him. But We rarely mention him otherwise. Oh, he's our life here. I mean, some people say, I, I can't, just can't share the gospel. I'm not, I need to go to some training in order to share the gospel. Oh, let me ask you pause for a second. Hey, how many of you are grandparents, okay? How many of you who are grandparents talk about your grandkids? I'll just go ahead and tell you. You, you all talk about your grandkids like, all the time. How many of you receive training on how to talk about grandkids? What's on your heart and your mind comes out of your mouth. What's on your heart and your mind comes out of your mouth. It's God on your heart and your mind. It's God on your heart and your mind. communing with God, you're walking with God, he's on your heart, and your mind, you start talking about God, talking about the holiness of God, speaking about God with reverential awe, speaking about yourself with genuine humility, drawing attention to attributes that distinguish God from people in this world. There's a whole series we walk through at Brook Hills if you want to dive into this more in depth. There's so much. I'd love to go in here, but it's 11 o'clock. Draw attention to ways in which God reigns above the gods of this world. Talk about the justice of God. Express confidence in God Before others when things go wrong. Express remorse before God and others when you do something wrong. Even amidst all the social justice talk today, as you work for justice in the world, speak about the judge of the world. As you observe evil and suffering in the world, speak with hope about the world to come. Which then leads to talking about the grace of God. Constantly point out evidences of God's grace in and around you. Constantly credit God as the source of everything good in and around you. So when something good happens, thank God. Chesterton said the loneliest moment for an atheist is when he's filled with gratitude and has no one to thank. Express gratitude to God. Continually acknowledge your need for God's grace. Unceasingly express your gratitude for God's grace. Do people around you that you work with, live around, do they know how grateful you are for God's saving grace in Christ? They know that because you have said that. You spoke about it over and over and over again. So speak about the character of God all day long. Second thread, sinfulness of man. We're each created by God, but we're all corrupted by sin. As people, we've rebelled against God. We've turned away from God to ourselves. What we thought would lead to freedom in our sin has led each of us into slavery to sin. As a result, we're separated from God, which leads to guilt, shame, fear in our lives. We're dead without God. What we thought would lead to life turning away from God has led each of us to death, eventual physical death and eternal spiritual death. We're completely unable to save ourselves. So how do we weave that gospel thread into everyday conversations? Do we just go up to people and say, Hey, you need God to save you from your sin and yourself? Well, reality is most people don't think they need to be saved from anything. And at that moment, the only thing they may want to be saved from is you. So how can we more wisely weave this gospel thread into our conversations. How about just start with speaking respectfully to and about all people as individuals created in the image of God. So that's a good place to start. Just everybody around us, even the people that get on our nerves the most, they're created in the image of God. Look intentionally for opportunities to encourage others by the grace of God. Share confidently in view of the regenerating power of God. Oh, the God who has the power to create has the power to recreate. Which means, so just pause here, you can go to the hardest heart in your office, the man or woman who wants nothing whatsoever to do with God. You can go to the darkest unreached people group on the planet whose mindset and culture is completely set against Christianity in every way. You can speak this gospel, and with the power of the Spirit of God, He will bring people from death to life. He will do it. We didn't believe this. So talking about our re- rebellion, acknowledge the reality of sin in and around you. Acknowledge the root of sin in and around you. Don't talk about sin on a surface level. Go to the root of the heart. Speak honestly about our propensity to sin. Talk about sin in all of its forms. Talk about sin in light of its force. Talking about our separation. Speak humbly about the seriousness of sin. Don't joke about sin in your life or others' lives. Don't joke about temptation then let the effects of sin inform the way you talk talking about so, salvation when talking about guilt talking about forgiveness and talking about shame talking about honor in christ and conversations about fear talking about freedom in christ from those fears and then even talking about our deadness well whenever the topic of death comes up in the world how do we speak well respond to the death of non-christians with appropriate honor so we're not we, somebody who dies without christ what do, what do you say well, you honor that person with biblical honesty, meaning we have to guard against this dangerous temptation that comes out, particularly, and speaking here from Alabama and this religious south, when it comes to death, a, a totally pagan non-Christian will die, and all of a sudden, everybody in the church is talking about, like they're going to heaven. And biblically, it's not true. People who die in their sin have not trusted Jesus as their Savior, follow Him as Lord, they die an eternal spiritual death. So with biblical honesty, now obviously nobody ultimately knows the state of a person's heart so speak with personal humility knowing that something may have happened. Maybe that person trusted in Christ even in their last minutes. So at the same time, knowing that if they didn't, they died apart from God. So speak with heartbreaking anguish over the death of a sinner separated from God and with life-giving resolve to spend our lives to spread the gospel to others like them before they die. And then to respond to the death of Christians with profound sorrow, abiding joy, sincere worship, and uncheckable hope. Oh, there's so much here. Constantly point to our dependence on God and constantly point to our desperation for God. Sufficiency of Christ, the reality that Jesus alone is able to remove our sin, restore us to God, he lived the life we couldn't live. He's died the death we deserve to die. He's conquered the enemy we cannot conquer. So intentionally, so weaving this gospel thread, intentionally talk about Jesus. Outside of Sunday, Christians talk so tragically little about Jesus. We hardly ever mention his name. I mean, even if we go on a limb every once in a while to talk about God, okay, then, but once you mention Jesus at work, things just got really awkward. But speak about Jesus, talk about his life. Look for opportunities to highlight his example for us. Look for opportunities to acknowledge his work in us. Look for opportunities to point out his identification with us. Are people around you hurting? Jesus hurt. Are people around you broken? Jesus was broken. Are people around you feel rejected? Jesus was rejected. Are people around you feel alone? Jesus was alone. Then talking about Jesus' death, never stop emphasizing the gravity of sin. Never start talk, stop talking about your gratitude for, for, for Christ. And then talking about Jesus' resurrection, speak, with difficulty, speak about difficulties with hope. Speak about difficulties with hope and speak about death with joy. You talk about cancer with joy. You talk about pain with joy. You talk about risking your life to go to the nations with joy. People start wondering what's going on. I'm not talking about a flippant happiness, I'm talking about an abiding sense of joy because you know Christ is risen and that means death is gain. Uh, I put here, just talking with pluralist Paul, so people uh, who who have pluralist idea that all roads kind of lead to the same place, highlight the all-important distinctions between taste, tradition, and truth. So we live in a culture where religious beliefs are just personal taste, whatever works best for you. And so you, if you're born, you, you may choose this path, you may choose this path, they're all kind of the same. Well, talk about how, how it really comes down to an issue of, of truth. So all religions are not fundamentally the same and just superficially different. Like There are core truth claims that separate Islam from Christianity, for example. Islam says that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Christianity says that Jesus did die on the cross and rise from the grave. Like, I'm not even saying which one's true or which one's false in a conversation at that point. I'm just saying they can't both be true at the same time. Either he did die or he didn't die. And people say, well, you can't really know what's true. There's no absolute truth. And you just say... Does that include the statement you just made? Because you denied your own statement. Your own statement, there is no truth. So anyway, there's other things we could talk about there. Talking, like 10 of you got that. Talking with open-minded Olivia, explain the pursuing God, love of God and the perceived narrowness of the gospel. People say, well, why would God only make one way? When we, once we realize the whole story of the gospel and have an opportunity to talk about that, you realize the question is not why is there only one way. The question is why is there any way at all? This is God's love for us that he's made a way. Um, And then talking with nominal Nancy, nominal Christians, so people who are Christians in name only. So point out how privatized faith in a resurrected Christ is practically impossible. It is impossible to believe in a life, death, and resurrection of Jesus as the only way to be restored to God, to believe that, and and then for that to have no effect in your life. All that leading to the necessity of faith, how we can be restored to God only through faith in Jesus. We turn from our sin and ourselves, and we trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord so this is where I want to encourage you. Oh, take advantage of every opportunity you have to tell your story of how you turned and trusted in Christ, repented and believed. So keep it simple. So this is not an exhausting, circuitous trip down spiritual memory lane with a half a dozen plot lines, 16 main characters, complete with all the owls you've walked in church and all the angels who appeared to you in your bedroom. Just keep it simple. Keep it focused on the greatness of God, on the threads of the gospel, weaving them in, keeping it understandable. So I would not recommend talking about how you've been justified by the Holy Ghost when He regenerated your heart, revealing your depravity before His divinity, restoring your connectivity with the sovereign King and Christianity because of Christ's propitiation for your sin. Like, that's just not going to make sense. So be humble and prayerful. Uh, Um, be passionate, be yourself. Talking about restoration and conversation about guilt, talking about forgiveness, talking about honor, talking about freedom. We addressed that earlier. Talking about turning point to the mercy of Christ when people around you see their sin. And God's bringing people to the end of themselves. Don't tell them to believe in themselves. Tell them to go to Christ. Point to the presence of Christ when people around you come to the end of themselves. And then talking about trusting. Encourage people around you to see the Lordship of Christ. To see the Lordship of Christ. And urge people around you to receive the love of Christ. Then I put in here, uh, particularly when talking with your children about faith, maximize inter- interaction. So when you're talking with children about the gospel, ask open-ended questions, not yes and no questions. I remember I, remember I was sitting on, uh, near the front in a worship service, and a guest preacher, he said... Um, uh, all right, now we're going to have invitation time at the end of the service. And he said, um, some of you need to, need to come to Christ. And, and then he said, but some of you uh, need to just go to other people in the church and just thank them for who they are and just encourage them. And so the pastor was standing down here at the front. I was a little kid. I don't remember how old I was, um, 10 or 11. And uh, I saw the pastor. He was standing up here all by himself. And I was thinking, oh, I mean, somebody's got to thank him. For what he's doing, and uh, so I, I get out from my seat and I come up to him and I say, uh, I look up. He's an older brother. I said, Pastor, thank you for all you do. And I could tell he music loud or whatever. He couldn't really understand me, and he said, well, Say that again. And so I, just, I want to thank you for all you do. And he said, So you want to rededicate your life? And I was like. Yes, yes, sir. <laughs> and so uh, he sits me down on the front row. I start filling out a card. Uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, my, my parents come down. They stand with me at the front. They're in tears. Everybody's like, oh. I mean, look at the wayward 10-year-old who's back. And <laughs> just trying to thank him. So, so. Clear clarity of communications what we're after with kids. Utilize illustration with kids. Use repetition. Constantly emphasize the threads of the gospel all day long with your kids and continually encourage a posture of turning and trusting. You know, it may not be discernible exactly the moment when a child comes to faith in Christ. Like a 40-year-old who's been a drug addict and comes to faith in Christ, there's going to be a, a pretty radical turning there that might not look exactly the same with an a eight-year-old who's uh, not a drug addict at that point. And, so, and, and, and that's okay. Like I want my kids to have a really boring testimony where they can hardly remember a time when they weren't turning and trusting they weren't repenting and believing. And so just constantly encourage that kind of posture. And then what about talking with cultural Christians about faith? And just encourage you ask thought-provoking questions that kind of get below the surface. Avoid or at least clearly over clearly define over familiar terms. So, do you believe in Jesus? Well, oh, I mean, everybody in Birmingham, well, 90% of people in Birmingham believe in Jesus. Like, big deal. I mean, most every intoxicated person I've ever met on the street believes in Jesus. Like, what, what does it mean to believe? So really think, invite them to study the Bible with you. Uh, so you walk through the Bible where you begin to uncover what biblical Christianity is and people hopefully begin to see whether their hearts are in Christ. Expose them to good gospel saturated community and resources. Boldly and graciously call people to turn and trust. Like, call people out of nominal Christianity. Intentionally and humbly weave gospel threads. All that leading to the urgency of eternity. Our eternal destiny hinges on our response to Jesus. Hell is a dreadful reality for those who turn from Jesus. Place of continual rebellion, final separation, eternal duration. Heaven is a glorious reality for those who trust in Jesus. Place of full reconciliation, complete resurrection, ultimate reunion. So we're asking people, will you turn or will you from Jesus or will you trust in Jesus? So weaving this gospel thread, minimize your conversation about temporal things. And maximize your conversation about eternal things. So talk about what matters. Talk about what matters. Talk about hell. Speak about God's character with humble confidence. Speak about God's judgment with healthy fear. Don't speak lightly about hell. We had a hell of a time. You played a hell of a game. That was a hell of a song. We have no idea the gravity of what we're talking about. Speak about God's wrath with honest compassion. Talk about heaven. Talk like this world is not your hope. Live like this world is not your home. We undercut the the gospel when we're storing up all our treasures on earth. We're living for another home. Talk about your anticipation of being with God. Talk about your realization that dying is gain. And when it comes down to it, we're not just sharing the gospel for information. We're sharing the gospel, calling people to make a decision here. So calling people to turn and trust. Clarify the gospel. So you share the gospel with somebody. You're able to bring all these threads together. Like, do you have any questions about that? Do you understand that? They have questions and you dive in. If they don't, okay, then ask. Ask a person. If they have any questions, clarify the gospel. Make sure the gospel's out there. Ask a person if they have any questions. Have they ever turned from their sin in themselves. Have you ever turned from your sin in yourself and trusted in Jesus the Savior, Lord? Ask if they would like to do that now. Maybe they'll say no. And it's, it's okay. Like, they know the gospel. They've heard it from you. They know they can come back to you with any questions. They say yes. Well... L, let the Holy Spirit work. So this is all the acrostic call. First L, let the Holy Spirit work. Only the Spirit of God can draw someone to Christ. And so let the Holy Spirit work. Don't feel like you got to manipulate a situation. And and in that situation, if they say, yes, I'd like to trust in Christ, well, then invite them to call out to God to save them. This is where I would say, I I don't think it's necessary to say, well, okay, say these words. If God has opened their eyes to the gospel and they understand who God is, who they are, what Christ has done, what it means to turn and trust, then it's not about getting the words right at that point. This is a heart condition. Invite them to call out to God to save them, or be willing to let them be alone with God, if that's best. Maybe maybe they need to spend some time alone with God, wrestling over these things. But we're still calling people to trust in Christ, and then, L, lead them as a new follower of Christ. We don't want to manufacture decisions. We want to make disciples. All that going back to 1 Corinthians 9, we daily run this race for the glory of our God. 1 Corinthians 9 ends with Paul using an illustration about runners running to receive the prize. And he says, this is a race for me. There's daily requirements in this race. Sacrificial self-denial, stringent self-discipline, and single-minded devotion. He said in Acts 20, 24, I don't account my life of any value, but one thing, one thing, I want to finish the task and complete the, 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 the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of his grace. This is what I'm after. This is what I'm focused on. And the ultimate rewards of this race is others experiencing the eternal joy of salvation and us fulfilling the earthly purpose of our salvation. Us, we will fulfill the earthly purpose of our salvation. Here's the deal. Uh, make this really quick. Get the, get the picture. I'm in high school. I'm on the baseball team. We're horrible. I'm horrible at baseball. Um, we're playing another team that's horrible. We get to the end of the season and it's a close game uh, all the way through. We get to the last inning or it's all tied up. We hold them from scoring in the top of the last inning. We're coming in the bottom of the last inning, which means we got a chance to win. Our coach meets us out in front of the dugout. Uh, he does this when there's something really important. He said, all right, guys, we got a chance to win this game and we need to do it right here because if, no, if we don't, we're going to go into extra innings and what's going to happen? We say, we're going to lose. We say, yes, that's right. We're going to lose. Because that's what we normally do, and so he said, "Here's the plan, David. You're up first. This inning, we need you to get to first. Once you get to first, we're gonna steal you over to second. Once you get to second, all we need is one hit. You'll round third, come home, we'll win the game." I'm thinking, "Yeah, right. One, we don't win games, and two, it's dependent on me getting to first base, which doesn't happen." So, all the other guys believed this could happen, so they're like, "Oh, come on, Dave, come on." So I'm putting the helmet on, I put it, grab the ground bat, and I'm just walking up to the plate, just praying, like. I know God, you love people on that team too, but uh, this would be really good if you could give me a hit right here and so i walk up there and stand up to bat. by the grace of almighty god i draw a walk so uh, apparently it was too much for the god of the universe to allow me to get a hit so he made sure a ball didn't come near me so i draw a walk so i go to first base when i get there i see the third base coach give me the steel sign i'm thinking i like the walking thing better now i gotta run so i take the lead off first base pitcher winds and throws I turn and I start running. start hauling towards second gaze. I get about five feet away. I start this beautiful headfirst slide. What do you think? Safe or out? Safe. Oh, safe? Who said out? I mean, come on. You got wheels, man. And, and the story would be horrible if it ended at this point. Like, just go with me, all right? So, so I get to second. Uh, the next guy up to bat strikes out. Big loser didn't walk like I did. So now... Do you know anything about baseball, if it's going to happen, it needs to happen right here. Like, this is the moment where it needs to happen. Because if they get a second out and they don't have to worry about me, they can kind of relax. If it's going to happen, it needs to happen right here. So I'm taking my lead off second. Guy up to bat. Uh, the pitcher winds, throws. He hits it in between the third baseman and the shortstop. And so I turn and I watch the ball go in front of me into left field. And I start running toward third. And I look up and I see the third base coach. And you'll never guess what he's doing. Doing this, like, all the way down third base line. Like, faster than I ever could. I'm like, why don't you do this, coach? And so... I, I was like, okay, touch third base, just and I look up, and 90 feet in front of me is a, uh, a guy who's a lot bigger than I am, and he's wearing all kinds of equipment, and he is out, mask off, and he's standing over home plate. And so I decided this is my moment. And so I start running as hard as I can, it's like, movie. Oh. All the guys are out of the jug out, jumping up, yelling, all the fans are going nuts. There's only like two people there, but they're going nuts. <laughs> all our parents wouldn't even come watch us play, we were horrible, we were horrible. So I'm running, I get five feet away and I start this new, uh, this next head first slide. I'm not going to ask you what thing happened. I, I, I get in, I brush my hand across the plate as the catcher catches the ball and puts it down on my shoulder. We both look up in the dust and the umpire yells, safe, safe. Oh, the guys come running out of the dugout, they jump on top of me. It was like we won the World Series. We won a game, a game. Huh. It was the most... It was the only glorious moment in my entire sports career. It was right <laughs> there. And it's so much fun to relive it. Um, so let me ask you this question. Let me ask you a question. What would you think of me as a baseball player if when I was rounding third base, I I thought, uh, I'm kind of hungry right now. I can use a hot dog. And I just go running over and get a hot dog. And the concession said, what would you think of me as a baseball player? If I was rounding third base, and I look up at the coach, see him passionately going down the line, and I think... I've just not spent a lot of time with Coach recently. Like, I, I just stopped and put my arm around him. like, Coach, how, how are you? Like, that's, that's your wife and your kids. Or, what would you think of me if I'm rounding third base? And as a high school boy, I look up and I look over in the stands and it just so happens that an attractive girl has come to watch us play. And I think, huh, oh, she looks better than he does. And so I go running over to her and just start conversation. Yeah, nice walk, huh? And so, nice walk, nice walk. So, what would you think of me if I did something like that? you think, oh, no wonder you don't win. No you missed the whole point. Like when the game came down to this moment, you got distracted and you missed the whole point. So this is where followers of Christ, all of us so who are in Christ, Christ in us, with Christ. He's with us. I want to call 60,000 of us tonight not to miss the point. We're in a world where people are on a road that leads to hell. We've got the gospel. We've got the gospel. Run the race. Like None of us has been saved to be sidelined in this race. None of us has been filled with the spirit of God to be a spectator in this race. God has put us in the places in the world He's put us for a reason, for the spread of the gospel. And so I want to call you i want to call you on a daily basis to wake up and say, how can I make this gospel known? How can I rearrange my life and run this race? Spreading the gospel for the glory of God. So that's where I want to leave this one. And let me just, let me do this. As we go to break, can you, just picture one person in your mind who doesn't know Christ. I did not plan on doing this, but can you picture one person in your mind who you know who doesn't know Christ? Can you just pray right now? I want to pray for you for courage to share the gospel with them this week. I mean, you got a perfect opportunity even Sunday, Easter Sunday. This is the one Sunday where people actually expect us to invite them to church. And I wonder why we don't, if we don't. So maybe it's a Sunday, just would you pray for courage to share the gospel? Would 60,000 of us filled with the Holy Spirit of God, just go out with one person on our hearts and, and share the gospel with them this week. God, I, I pray for that, I pray for that. God, I'm praying for myself. There's a couple people right now in my mind pray for courage to share the gospel with them. I pray for the people and minds all across this room and pray that over the next week that you would send out 60,000 of us filled with your Holy Spirit to run this race. And we pray for the salvation of friends this week. Pray for the salvation of family members, for the salvation of co-workers, neighbors. God, we pray that you would draw people to Christ through us this week. And you would enable us by your grace give us courage god give us courage we pray to experience the purpose for which you left us on the planet help us not miss the point we pray help us not pray my life our lives help us not to get to the end and miss the point when we look back in jesus name we pray amen Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.